Okay, Fictoplasm episode 101, Luther Arkwright by Brian Talbot. So The Adventures of Luther Arkwright is Brian Talbot's series about a multiversal conflict across many parallel universes. On one side we have the Disruptors, who are a kind of shadowy psychic organisation acting through multiple conspiracies and secret societies. And against them we have the Valhalla programme, developed on Zero Zero, the first version of Earth to achieve a... Uh, a peaceful and harmonic advanced technological state. And in this version of Earth, by the way, John Dalton developed the theory of relativity in 1800 and people landed on the moon in 1820. And by 1850, world poverty had been eradicated. And in 1881, Karl Marx proved that parallel worlds existed. So this central character, Luther Arkwright, has a lot of resonance with Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius. You know, he has the overall appearance, he has the vibra gun, you know, he's, the, he's the dead spit of the English assassin, but actually those similarities are pretty superficial. Jerry Cornelius is a kind of repeating character throughout multiple versions of the same story, you know, alongside his contemporaries like Bishop Beasley. Arkwright is kind of the opposite. He's in a multiverse where people have... Um, multiple versions of themselves throughout the various parallels, there is only one Luther Arkwright, and he's able to shift himself between realities at will. He's not the only one who can do this, and there are other psychics. Really, Arkwright has as much in common with Paul Atreides as Jerry Cornelius. You know, he's, he's this messianic, legendary figure who's central to the survival of the multiverse. Now, before I get too far ahead, I should mention various sources. Now my, my copy is the Dark Horse bind-up from 1997, which was followed by the sequel Heart of Empire in 1999 in the same imprint. But the series started around 1978, going to more than one magazine, I think, and being interrupted around 1982 before being finally completed between 1987 and 1989. And between those two periods, um, Brian Talbot was featured in issue 14 of Imagine magazine, where he summarises the overall framework of the series. The background of Zero Zero, the way that the Valhalla project charts the various parallel universes, and so on. And it was purely by accident that I learned about this from being part of the Grognard Files monthly book club. And I think this and the other issue were also recommended by Pookie of Reviews from Lier fame. So thanks to both Dirk and Pookie for that. And that issue also includes not only a traveller scenario, which is set in this universe, and it's called The Fire Opal of Set. It even has a two-page strip drawn by Talbot that leads into the scenario. All in all, that was a pretty spectacular find. Anyway, as usual, I'm going to talk about the synopsis, then the gameable bits, and finally other media, in which I'll cover both the Big Finish audiobook version and the design mechanisms Luther Arkwright RPG. So, here we go. Okay, so the the premise, there are multiple parallel Earths which are monitored by the most advanced version of Earth, which has designated itself Zero Zero. Um, This monitoring is called the Valhalla Programme, housed in the Valhalla Nova Context in London, and supported by the hypercomputer Wotan. Valhalla discovered the presence of an enemy organisation called the Disruptors in 1905 on that timeline. The disruptors exist across many parallels and lie behind many different conspiracies throughout alternate Earths. The main parallel of interest is 007287. 
in which the disruptors have secretly propped up the Cromwell dynasty for four centuries. And England is a, a fascist Puritan state with a royalist resistance, at least in the first story. Now, as far as the characters go, there are many different versions of the same person across the parallels. But there are some exceptions to this, and one of those exceptions is Luther Arkwright, who is a psychic and originates from only one parallel Earth, so he has no equivalent. More importantly, he can cross the parallels at will, um, and in time we learn that he's the next stage of female evolution. There are some other significant characters which include the various versions of Rose Wilde, who has a psychic rapport with her various selves across the other parallels. So she cannot travel to those places, but she can communicate to other versions of herself. And then other characters in the uh, the 007287, where most of the action happens, on the royalist side we have King Charles and Princess Anne, who will ascend to the throne as well as bearing Luther's children. And notably, she also has the same psychic abilities as Luther. And at the end of the first book, she leads the royalist forces into battle, and then becomes a major figure in the same parallel in the sequel, uh, Heart of Empire, which takes place some 20 years later. Other characters include uh, Harry Fairfax, who's like this flatulent royalist character, cut from kind of cut from the same cloth as Moorcock's companion to champions, I think. Um... There's uh, Octobriana, she's a fortune-telling, muscular Ukrainian woman who accompanies Luther on his mission to find Firefrost and fights off a bunch of disruptor shock troops single-handedly, so she rocks. Um, on the roundhead side, we have Cromwell, who's like something of a pitiful figure, really. He's got the power thanks to his disruptor masters, but he's also been subject to a miserable upbringing by his father, who he eventually poisoned in order to become the new Lord Protector. Um, there's also a character, Hiram Kowalski, who's a reporter from New Amsterdam out of the UCA, which I think is the United Commonwealth of America, not sure. Anyway, like, like Fairfax and Rose Wilde in Zero Zero, Hiram Kowalski makes another appearance in Heart of Empire. Now, he's important for providing objective reportage of the Roundhead Massacre in the first book, and another external viewpoint in the second. Now, other new characters in the sequels include Anne and Arkwright's daughter, Victoria, who's inherited a father's abilities. There's also Gabriel Shelley, who's an anti-royalist, and he's also a psychic homo novus. Um, there's Hiram's uh, partner and protege, Angie Russ, who is a actually a CIA agent posing as a junior reporter. And there's also the Vatican's assassin father, Barberini. And all of this is rounded out with a supporting cast of characters in the various political factions in each period, including the Prussian-Russian alliance in the first book, the Futurist faction in the second, as well as versions of historical persons like um, Dr. John Dee and Albert Einstein. So then if we talk about the first book and the synopsis, the first arc which Talbot authored between 1978 and 1989 mostly concerns the disruptor's attempts to use the Firefrost, which is an ancient artifact created as the ultimate weapon during a war between two ideologically opposed star systems who fought over multiple dimensions and you know, multiple star systems. And the function of Firefrost is, you know, as the ultimate weapon, it's to disrupt the cosmic order and replace it with chaos throughout all of reality. And it was intended to be a deterrent, but at some point, 
um, you know, it, according to the plot, it got triggered, causing chaos and destruction across all of the parallels. Um, and then eventually it, uh, it ended up on uh, a certain parallel Earth. Now, like Luther Arkwright also, it was created on just one parallel. And the Disruptor's plot is to seize the Fire Frost and use its destructive capabilities. And throughout the arc, we're made aware of this gradually worsening situation across all of the parallels uh, where we get the reports from Wotan, the central computer on Zero Zero, that um, there is this insurrection on this parallel timeline and there's this natural disaster on another. Um, and all of this is intercut with both Arkwright's backstory before his recruitment by Valhalla and the political situation in zero zero seventy two eighty seven, which is pretty much the centre of everything. So it's that that particular parallel is the site of the fire frost beneath the Great Pyramid, you know, the, the fire opal of Set. Um and it's responsible for this extensive and unique Egyptian mythos in that timeline that uh, that covers you know the, the fire opal of set and it's it's fall onto earth and everything um and most of the action happens on this parallel as i said and it mostly concerns this uh, 20th century puritan state where with a, a royalist insurrection against cromwell and this concludes with the battle of london with you know a pregnant queen anne leading her daughters of albion including that parallels version of rose wilde against the establishment and, and Arkwright does have a minor role in that conflict in assassinating the cabinet, which you can pretty well see that's going to happen a mile off. Um, but his main role in this at the end stage of that plot is going through this death and rebirth cycle. He dies and then he comes back to life because, of course, he's the next stage of evolution. So he can reconstruct his body at will. And then he uses his abilities to locate and destroy the disruptor's base, base of operations in another, in another reality, um, confronting the Omega and so forth. So this conclusion for this first volume sees the monarchy reinstated in Albion and the birth of the twins Victoria and Harry and the assumed dissolution of the various disruptor conspiracies across the parallels with the loss of the central command caused by Arkwright directly. Uh, and then all is stable in the multiverse once more. On a personal level, um, Arkwright has this closing scene with Rose Wilde where Arkwright symbolically destroys his fibra gun and hints at his legacy and the presence of other advanced humans who will have been caused to be born because they, they were being born right at this point of crisis. So then one of the bits of fallout from the first book is the influence of Firefrost on human evolution. Um, and this plot is used in other fiction, I think. Uh, for example, the Century Babies in the Vertigo Wildstorm series with the likes of um, Elijah Snow and Jenny Sparks. And I, I think the Spirit of the Century RPG uses the same uh, same idea, you know, the, the idea of certain heroes being all born at the same time to be the Centurions, the protectors of the Century. Um, but this is what, certainly what happens in uh, in this time frame. And, you know, this is across the entire multiverse. So then in the sequel, Heart of Empire, this action is split entirely between 7287, some 20 years on, so that, you know, it's, it's what then happened to the, the royalist order after they got control. And also it goes back to zero, zero, that's once again monitoring coming cataclysm. Um, 
And this is, of course, the time when this new generation of Homo Novus, who were born in the previous story right at the end, would come to maturity. That's actually only a small part of the plot, but I, th- I don't think you can overlook it. And in some ways, the second book leans much more into a single extrapolated history with a, a monarchy established once again by divine right of bloodline and, you know, political adjutants calling for universal suffrage. Importantly, this regime is, is no better than the one before under the Puritans. It's, it's possibly worse. You know, it's, it's British colonialism brought to our 21st century. You know, they, they have slavery and uh, miscegenation is a capital crime. Um, and it's also a weird inversion of the previous regime. What I mean by this is that Anne actually has a lot in common with Cromwell in terms of her addictions and sexual appetites, which means that she just uses people for her own gratification. In fact, um, in a lot of cases, it's it's even worse than Cromwell, at least in the, in the first book where we had Cromwell getting nuns to dress up in fetish gear and whip him. Um, we at least got the, the point of view of those those other characters. We don't get any of that from the point of view of Anne, who's got this, um, well, she calls it her Irish regiment. They're kind of sex slaves. Uh, and they're, they're obviously in her thrall and don't really have any agency whatsoever. But anyway, this is a much more focused story around the political situation in Albion. And there are two different factions who want to assassinate the Queen. And this includes the Vatican, whose instrument is the psychic assassin Barberini. And then there's the Futurist, led by Lord Northumberland. Um, But our point of view character is Victoria, who's daughter of Luther Arkwright. As far as Arkwright goes, he's considered having died and just been in his tomb for for the last 20 years. Um, Actually, he's disappeared. Uh, He absented himself and went to live on a different timeline uh, for reasons. but it that that itself has had an effect on Victoria, and you know she, she, it's clear that she's been searching for answers to her life, and also she's been beset by migraines that cause her to um, well vomit suddenly. You know, not not that actually she really cares because she's your archetypal rebellious royal daughter. She doesn't really care anything for royal ceremony, she, so she doesn't mind sort of there being a big uh, big ceremony in front of the queen, and then she just quietly throws up on the carpet. Um, but I mean, so she's she's kind of we're kind of phoning in that character a bit, but we do get to follow various threads, uh, including her Victoria and also Hiram and Angie and others, and that gives us the outlay of the political situation in this parallel. And then we also get the view from Zero Zero um, that the once again the multiverse may be coming to an end. Everything is centred around this uh, symbol, this motif of a five-pointed star that manifests in various places. Uh, It appears in Barberini's spaghetti. It turns up in Victoria's vomit. There's a blood sacrifice by Dr. John Dee, and he notes this five-pointed star. So there's this gradual build-up of this idea towards a cataclysm that is once again threatening the entire multiverse. And this cataclysm is closely related to Anne and Arkwright's bloodline, and it is actually the reason for Victoria's constant migraines. And Dr. D surmises that Victoria is under constant psychic assault by this gathering psychic nexus. And there are a lot of things that hint at family and blood being the source of the problem. Um, so, for example, Gabriel Shelley, who's like the 
the adjutant seeking uh, universal suffrage. He looks an awful like, lot like Victoria, a male version of Victoria with his long white hair. And he also looks like Luther Arkwright. You know, he's these intense blue eyes and psychic powers. It's clear that he is one of the homo novus. Um, there's also the backstory about how Victoria's brother Harry was assassinated by futurists at age seven. Um, now, of course, we know that the Homo Novus can resurrect itself and reconstruct its body through force of will. So it does make sense that Harry could be alive. So the plot's strongly related to this bloodline. And, and basically, this is what happens for the rest of the book. Firstly, Victoria develops her full abilities and manages to jump to a parallel world. One which is, um, it's, it's actually really great. It's England is Ingolstan and London is New Bangalore thanks to India's colonial influence on the Western world. Um, but here she's she's also reconciled with her father who, you know, absented himself from her parallel, 7287, and also, importantly, renounced violence. And together they've returned to her parallel to stop the cosmic cataclysm by assembling the usual gang of, um, you know, personalities to storm the palace and confront the cosmic terror lurking there with a bit of psychic help from the new breed of Homo Novus and Rose Wilde in Zero Zero. And at the same time, Gabriel Shelley's suffrage movement is planning a demonstration in central London, one that Northumberland's futurist conspiracy plans to turn into a massacre. So much like the first book, the climax happens on both an earthly scale with the scenes of violent political unrest and on the cosmic scale with Arkwright and the other psychics confronting the overall um, metaphysical threat to the universe. Now, everything concludes with seconds to spare. And I really think that Talbot has, a, has this really great grip on the pace of the story in both volumes, but especially in Heart of Empire, where it really feels like, really feels like he's polished it. Now, before I move on to the remarks and gameable content, I want to let you know that I have the more recent Luther Arkwright game by the design mechanism, and I've deliberately not read that before making my own notes on this section. Um, I'm going to come to that supplement in the media section. But first, um, I'm going to make a few remarks, and I'm going to tackle the elephant in the room and directly compare Talbot's fiction with Moorcock's fiction. And I think that it makes sense to compare on a couple of different levels. The first is comparing Arkwright to the Eternal Champion. Obviously, he looks a lot like Jerry Cornelius with dark glasses and a big coat and a vibro-beamer gun. But looking beyond that, the role Arkwright serves in averting disaster on a cosmic scale is also like the Eternal Champion. And I think you could use the cosmic antibodies metaphor from the Invisibles. You know, Arkwright has this destiny to fulfil and... He's even aware of his own lack of agency. You know, there's this conversation he and Victoria have when they meet up in Heart of Empire, the idea that there is a predetermined cosmic pattern and free will is an illusion. But that said, Arkwright has this self-awareness and a maturity that I think a lot of the incarnations of the Eternal Champion just don't have. He's aware that he's a higher being and he doesn't complain about being dragged around according to the whims of law and chaos. You know, in fact, he's hyper-rational in his views on superstition and magic. There's also only one of him in the entire multiverse, so it's like he's a defect in the cosmic pattern and, as a consequence, he's an agent of change. Now, talking about the cosmic pattern... 
This is the more obvious contrast between Talbot and Moorcock, and Talbot's multiverse is entirely about order and structure, and more importantly it's presented in a sequential way. There's no time travel, and one of the things I found very strong in the first book was the way that the reporting of the worsening situation on all parallels was presented alongside the narrative. So we have this idea that things are being destabilised everywhere. And this is much easier to manage game-wise without time travel and with other parallels as just locations you can visit. Obviously, zero zero is order, and the disruptors are chaos. You know, the disruptors are using Firefrost to create chaos through the multiverse. But you don't have this anthropomorphizing of lore and chaos into various gods, which means you also don't have this cosmic chain of being with older gods like Kul and Rin, uh, who are set above lore of chaos and this whole hierarchy of, of gods. Um, I suppose you could reason that you've got Homo Novus as the next level above humanity, but they're presented in a very rational and non-secular way. So they're not above, certainly not in a spiritual sense, they're just a new iteration. Now, um, related to all of this, I think we need to also acknowledge the pace of both stories because that's something I think Talbot really nails in these books as well as some of his other stuff like Granville. So you have this ramping up of tension that's felt across all of the different parallels, and it's a bit like an apocalypse world clock or a doom counter. At each level, things get slightly worse. Now, I, I really like clocks, and I think they're particularly good when they're visible on the table. Um, and of course, if you have a worsening situation that's triggered by each segment of the clock moving on, then you have to define your parallels by what could get worse. And again, I think Apocalypse World can show the way here. That system uses various fronts, which are linked to MC moves, which tell you what to do as the situation gets worse. And even in a more traditional scenario, I'd still be inclined to think along those lines. You know, the, the getting worse bit... Um, well, for worlds where there's an unstable political situation, this will be a worsening of that situation and more and more violence. But for other worlds, it may well be a, a natural disasters, you know, like plagues and floods and the like. Um, and all of these are manifestations of chaos, just, you know, emerging as, as things get worse. Um, so I guess that's another point of comparison between Talbot and Moorcock. Talbot's chaos is an obvious ramping up in the tension, whereas Moorcock's is a degeneration into the psychedelic. You know, and I've said in the past, whilst the, the Moorcock version is fun to read, it does kind of risk your players just losing patience. So on the face of it, Talbot's version of chaos and things getting worse is actually a lot more gameable and it, it confronts the players with a problem that... Moorcock's chaos doesn't really do in the same way. I mean, there are other values of it in terms of the game you're playing. But um, I think if there's a big teachable moment in Talbot's books, it's this gradual ramping up of the problems in across all of the parallels, which give you a good sense of the cosmic scale of the issues. Anyway, um, moving on, the last thing I want to talk about is the parallel selves across the series. 
Rose Wilde is this really nice counterpoint to Arkwright. You know, she lives in many different versions of herself, and she's in psychic contact with all of her other versions of herself. We assume there are different versions of the same characters on other parallels, and, and we've got evidence for that in the likes of Dr. D and Einstein. Um, so I could imagine running the Luther Arkwright game across several parallels and, um, I don't know, playing the same version of a certain character. It's not dissimilar to the idea of multiple cover stories I talked about in The Invisibles, although I, I don't think it even needs to be that complicated. You know, where, where it does differ is that each version of the parallel self will have to have come from a different timeline. So there's there's really an opportunity for some player-led or collaborative timeline creation. And, and as a side comment, one of the most effective ways or efficient ways I've seen of creating a timeline is taking cues from the Chrononauts card game, where the timelines are based on various linchpins, which can be uh, flipped to get alternative timelines. And I can imagine everyone having um, the same timelines in a player-facing document, and then the deviations from that timeline being a feature on each PC's character sheet. There is the question of how you play this out, of course. You know, if, you, if you're not a homo novus that can go between the parallels, then your party is going to be composed of um, characters entirely from a set timeline. So in that case, you might have all of the players creating their own PC in their own parallel, and then the GM setting the scenario on a particular timeline, and then the players get to see how that timeline differs from their original version, and they role-play accordingly. You know, those differences are likely to create certain tensions and variations in character. Um, and I can see some mechanisms like the distance between the scenario timeline and the original character concept causing tension and uh, you know pulling the characters in different directions that you might previously not have anticipated um another way you might do it is you might also consider everyone making a zero zero version of their character who's you know the the ur pc a bit like you know much like rose wild so then you can split the action between what's happening on the parallel where the scenario and adventure is and the conversations between the um zero zero characters and the supercomputer Wotan on zero zero in this kind of utopian world that's observing everything going on in the different parallel universes. So as I said, I have the Luther Arkwright game and I'm going to talk about it now, but I intentionally didn't dip into it until I'd finished this bit of the episode. So my thoughts on how to adapt the fiction wouldn't be influenced. So then I think it's now time to talk about media. And there are three things I want to talk about. Number one is going to be the design mechanisms game. And number two is going to be the big finish adaptation of Luther Arkwright. And then the last thing will be um, imagine episode 14. So there's, there's a couple of things to talk about there because that adds another dimension to the original Luther Arkwright canon. So let's talk about the design mechanisms treatment of the series. Now, the supplement, which is copyright 2015, authored by Bowser, Nash, Steele and Whitaker. It features Talbot's art, which is supplemented by art by Lee Smith. And it's, it's basically an add-on to RuneQuest 6. So the book starts with an overview of the series, and then it moves on to what the Valhalla agents actually do. And here's where there's 
the first deviation that happens that I think it's a deviation. Basically, the agents make use of transdimensional travel technologies, which is kind of playing fast and loose with the cannon. Um, I assume there are transdimensional technologies used by the disruptors, and that's how they get to the um, the Great Pyramid to, to find Dr. Brianna, for example. But also, um, I assume that they use those technologies to communicate with Cromwell and other pawns. But strictly speaking, it's the Homo Novus are the ones who can travel across the parallels. Um, and I'm pretty sure that Arkwright is recruited by Rose Wild because she's able to communicate with her other selves and therefore help coordinate Valhalla's efforts. But anyway, there's, there's a lot I like about the character generation, especially the various options for the kinds of world the character came from before they were recruited to Valhalla. Um, it does have this familiar ring quest structure of attributes and previous career and standard and professional skills. You know, it's very serviceable. Um, but also they've tweaked the system a bit with tenacity points based on POW for travelling between parallels and um, keeping your head or keeping your sanity. You know, it, it does make sense. And there's a nice random table of background events with entries like, um, oh, in, in your parallel, one of your family is notorious. Or in your backstory, you inherited some weird technology. Um, I think that, that that adds a lot of utility to character generation. After that, though, they have a section on traits, passions and dependencies. And I know that passions are a RuneQuest 6 thing, but I'm wondering if the other two are new. Um... After that, there's a section on madness and other conditions, and um, it's basically tenacity being sand by another name, although, I don't know, that, that, that may be oversimplifying it, but I do think that using sanity or san-adjacent mechanics is a bit of a blunt instrument to apply to transdimensional travel. Although, you know, I, I think it still works. I mean, it still works as a sort of sliding scale of how much you can tolerate, so that's okay. Um, after that, there's a section on psionics, which are, you know, spells and powers, all pretty predictable stuff, but perfectly functional. Um, they do have a nice part where it talks about developing your own psychic powers. There's a section on firearms and combat. Uh, one of the things um, I liked is, well, I never played RuneQuest 6 or Mongoose Request or Mongoose RuneQuest 2 or Legend. So I never really got into the combat maneuvers, but it is a big part of that system. And... I think it's nice that this particular splat book engages with that part of the system so that the you know the the Luther Arkwright game actually has some interesting mechanical combat in it and Luther Arkwright is a violent series you know there's an increasingly chaotic situation uh, which is often presented as war and other conflicts so it, it kind of makes sense so I, I think yeah thumbs up for good for engaging with that um there's a technology section and there's a vehicle section which I skipped over. The technologies is worth mentioning though. I, I really like that for the um the range of technologies discussed, which are from steampunk to alchemy to xenotechnology, lots and lots of different options talking about the particular tech level at that particular time when you're visiting a certain parallel. Um, got to bear in mind that there, as there's no time travel, time just moves on. So you say, you, you know, I'm going to base this game in 1984. It's 1984 across all of the parallels, but they can have wildly different tech levels. And there's a lot of thought that's been put into this. So I was quite pleased with that. Um, there's a nice section on the disruptors and Wotan. Um, 
how useful is that? Well, I, I don't think it's particularly useful to talk too much about Omega because that, of course, is the end state. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of value in talking about the disruptor organization right the way from pawns through to bishops because you could imagine a, a campaign being all about taking down a bishop and saving a particular parallel world. That, that would be a good quality meaty game. Um, that would be, you know, a satisfying conclusion. It's good. Destroying the bishop is a good, credible end of campaign state. So I, I think that's quite good. Then there's some real quality stuff in the chapter about parallels, and that covers all the, the different alternate Earths. Um, but it also talks about creating new ones. So I thought that that worked extremely well. And the thing I think I particularly like is the amount of ownership the game assumes on the part of the GM and playgroup. And that's how it should be. When there are so many possibilities from the different worlds to play, um, putting it in the hands of the playgroup, that's what you should be doing. Right, the, the last thing's sort of rounding off. There's a chapter for gems and gives a few tips and tricks. It's a scenario, a summary of the saga. But then there is an appendix including the fictional touchstones. And that's what really made the game for me. You know, they, they mention TV series to start with, like Adam Adamant, Sapphire and Steel. And then they talk about uh, Flashman, uh, Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age, um, Jericho Nelius, of course. Um, if I'm going to make one criticism, it's I'd, I'd actually like to see this this stuff early on in the book, um, you know, front and center rather than placed in the appendix. But you know, it's it's a really great bibliography. So I think in summary, this is not the way I would mechanically do Luther Arkwright, but it's so solid in the way that it does things, and there's a lot that I would dive into just for the ideas on um, how to present parallel worlds or develop PCs from parallel worlds. So I think this is a quality supplement. So moving on, second piece of media I want to mention is the Big Finish audio drama of Luther Arkwright with David Tennant as Arkwright and, oh my God, Paul Darrow as Cromwell. This is a really faithful adaptation of the first book and I wasn't quite convinced in the initial scenes of the fight at the Bayer Tapestry, which is, I don't know, it's something about Tennant's delivery which is a bit too Doctor Who. But once he did the scenes for the interview tapes with his backstory, I was really sold. Um, and it's only a fiver to download, so I really recommend it. Um, I love Big Finish, and at some point I need to talk about Sapphire and Steel with Susanna Harker and David Warner. Um, even though you can't buy those anymore, uh, you might have to go to a certain online auction site. Still, um, Sapphire and Steel Big Finish audio dramas are recommended. Um, I'm going to talk about them at some point. Right, last thing, um, imagine issue 14. As I mentioned, it was like pretty much purely by chance I joined the Group Love Files Center of a Book Club and um, and I got a chance to read Imagine Issue 14. Um, so the thing about that copy is that it featured not only a written background for Luther Arkwright, um, but it was also had a two-page strip that isn't in the main graphic novel. It looks like Brian Talbot drew it for that issue of Imagine because the characters in the strip are the pregens for the Luther Arkwright scenario called the Fire Opal of Set, which is a traveller scenario. So bear in mind that Imagine was a UK TSR magazine. Uh, so it's interesting though, covering traveller from GDW. Um, the other notable thing about that issue is it was published in May 1984. So the, the first arc of Luther Arkwright wasn't even concluded in print at that point which makes it a really interesting artifact of the time. 
And I think that's all I have to say, except for one final thing. Um, I decided to do this episode directly after The Invisibles for the obvious linkage between Jerry Cornelius, Gideon Stargrave, and Luther Arkwright. And so it seems fitting that the next episode will cover Oswald Bastable in the sixth volume of Moorcock's omnibus titles, uh, which is A Nomad of the Time Streams. And I think this is noteworthy because Luther Arkwright has the look of Jerry Cornelius, as mentioned, but the whole situation has a lot more in common with The Warlord of the Air and sequels with these um, you know, steampunk aesthetic and the imperial military motifs. I've, I've got a slight problem with steampunk because mostly we just look at the technology and clothes and we don't really engage with the politics. Um, but Moorcock actually wrote the forward for the 1997 bind-up of the first arc um, and uh, published by Dark Horse. And it calls out a lot of the evils in our world and the worlds that Arkwright fights in. And it points out, you know colonial and imperialist attitudes and the struggle for better worlds which Arkwright fights for across the parallels um, and I think rereading that essay is going to cover it's going to color my rereading of the Oswald Bastable novels although that's not such a bad thing um, I do recommend if you can seeking out the appendix n podcast interview of Michael Moorcock where it talks uh, specifically about his activism as a you know anti-racist activism in the in the 60s and um then you read if you read this uh, forward it fits perfectly and it gives you a much better sense of both what Moorcock is doing and also the environment which um you know D Brian Talbot's world is emulating that chaos comes from uh you know selfishness and, and political instability and greed a lot of negative human traits um so seek those out i recommend them anyway thanks for listening to this podcast and if you enjoyed i'd appreciate a five-star review on itunes to you know feed the algorithm um, but otherwise please like share subscribe tell your friends and so on and if you'd like to support the podcast i have a patreon account and details are in the show notes music as always is by chris abreski Find more great ambient music at chrisbreski.com. Until next time, bye bye.